Hello and welcome to Exposed, a series I have created in order to highlight the privacy issues which have arisen and are arising with the introduction and mainstream adoption of many new technologies such as smartphones, social media, cloud storage and security devices. Social networks such as Facebook make up the daily routines of over a billion people. Facebook alone has nearly 1.6 billion active users. Facebook accepts 300 million photo uploads on a daily basis. This activity generates giant amounts of stored data for these companies. Currently, Google has over a million petabytes stored and processes over 24 times that. If you stored 1 million petabytes on the world's largest capacity drives, the drives laid out would occupy an area of nearly 1.5 square kilometers or the area of about 72 of my local AFL stadium's pitch. YouTube has around a billion users every month. Those users watch over 6 billion hours of video each month. Large amounts of this data are collected for personalization of their services and sold to advertisers by the social networks. <clears throat> Social networks encompass a variety of online communication me methods for a variety of uses. Interpersonal networks work to facilitate friendships and relationships, think Facebook or MySpace. Status update based networks like Twitter promote quick thought sharing and posts which are current and in the moment. Location based networks share where you are at a particular time. Examples are Facebook's check-ins, Apple's find my friends, and Foursquare. Content sharing services allow people to share media such as photo and video with others. YouTube and Instagram may come to mind. Finally, social networks which are built around a common interest between users. These networks often are very open and public. They facilitate discussion and sharing in communities specific to hobbies, politics, ethnicity, religion or other interests. Social networks of all varieties have a tendency to put much of your private information on show. Information such as photos, age, gender, education, employment status or history, hometown, posts, friends, location and interests may be publicly available. Many of these details can put your security and safety at risk while the availability of this information is threatening to our privacy. While much of this information can be marked private for only approved friends or contacts to view, other information cannot be made private and is indefinitely public such as profile images and your name. Your information may become public when reposted by approved friends, accessed by apps you've linked to the network, or the network changes their privacy policy, which most do not read. Linked apps is especially prevalent with social networks such as Facebook, Twitter and Google services, each of which offer login services for a massive variety of services. Often considered a convenience to quickly log in with these common services, the amount of information given to the service by Facebook is whatever they request. The user must either change it intentionally for each service or block certain information from being accessed by apps. These options have been hidden deep within the settings, making it difficult for users to access. It has also been discovered that system glitches caused by social networks have caused large amounts of users' private data to be leaked to the public. The security of social networking sites is questionable. 
Therefore, as users, it is important that we moderate what we post. Your social media usage and profile can give away great amounts about you, often building an impression of you before someone even meets you. It can also give people information about your reputation and attitude. This information is often used when performing background checks for things like rentals, loans, professional relationships, volunteer positions, university and scholarship placements, and job placements. Not to mention new friends who are likely to view your profile to size you up as a person. Social media accounts often reveal people's private lives to business contacts, something that most can do without. Further risk lies in oversharing and not enough protection of your personal information. This information can be used to carry out identity theft, giving people enough information to pose as you, leading to potential financial fraud and risk. Cookies collected on your computer can be used to track and store your browsing habits. They can be used to build a profile around a user's habits and behaviours. This is mostly used to target advertising towards you. You've likely experienced this. You've gone to eBay, Amazon or your preferred e-tailer and you search around for something. Then, having moved on to other browsing, your shopping activity appears to have followed you across the internet. The website you are now on is showing you ads for the product you just searched for. Facebook also uses users' interests to provide targeted advertising in the hopes of improving advertising effectiveness. So with all the issues surrounding privacy and social media usage, how do we protect ourselves? Well, it's often recommended to keep your online persona for games and online forums separate from your offline identity. It's common that this is achieved by using fictional nicknames and usernames where your real identity is not important. Would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Oh, okay, Matthew. Uh, my name's Billy Stewart and I've been a privacy officer for over 10 years now in various um, large government departments and universities. I got in introduced to privacy really through research ethics and um, I just found privacy compliance really a really fascinating topic. And um, the, the way the legislation is kind of principles-based, so it has to be interpreted for operational settings, interests me greatly. Okay. okay, fantastic. Fantastic. So onto the topic of social networks. Do you believe that as individuals we are doing enough to protect our digital identities on the internet? Um, probably not. Um, some of the things I think about when um, working in a university and seeing students' use of social media is that, I mean, there's the old chestnut of your employer might be looking at some point at your social media and see you drinking or in a bikini or whatever. But I think some of the things that people don't think about is it might increase your insurance premiums or if they see that you've had a cigarette at a party once or that you ate McDonald's as a child, that might change your um, insurance premiums based on the fact that they can use facial recognition to just scan the internet for pictures of you with certain foods or beverages. Um, another, another point is that it could stop you getting loans at different stages in your life, getting credit for mortgages or other purchases okay. because of activities um, that you've been 
taking photos of and uploading. Um, I think facial recognition is is just starting to become a reality. It's kind of gone off and on a wee bit, but as soon as that happens, there'll be less capability of having anonymity on the internet um, because even though I've got a relatively unusual name, there's still lots of Billy Stewart's out on the internet. Mm. And so if you Google my name, you don't, you come up with so many um, responses, you can't necessarily identify me, but with facial recognition, it will be much more able to pinpoint you in particular. And we're not sure how those photos are going to be used in the future. So we're publishing madly all these photographs and then because we feel like it's safe for us to do so now. But if things change, terms and conditions change and um, and uses change in the future, we might get a surprise as to how the information is used by large corporations in particular. Okay. And I guess that leads onto our next question. Do you believe people overshare on social media? Well, I think people do, but if it's all about the way you feel, it's so subjective and emotive. If you feel safe doing so now, then you are not oversharing from your own perspective. But it's just that as you grow older or your life changes, you might um, change the comfort levels. And in the past, when we just used to tell people things or gossip and have hard copy photographs, it was easy to burn those photographs or to forget all that gossip that you had when you were 15. By the time you're 25, you've forgotten it. But the trouble is now that there's this kind of permanent record um, I, I think that's why people um, are discussing in various jurisdictions the right to be forgotten. And there's yes. even been yes. um, an idea that at 18 you get a new digital, you get a new name and, and your digital footprint is wiped. Wow. And then wow. you get to start uh, fresh at 18 because that's kind of a, a, a time in your life when you might be able to make better decisions. I don't know whether that's the right age because um, – it, uh, for me personally, I'm glad social media didn't exist when I was 18. I don't think I was making appropriate decisions. But that's an interesting idea that you would go through instead of, uh, you know, the key to the door at 21, you get a new, a clean digital slate. So it's an interesting idea. Okay. Okay. Is it ironic that people are worried about their faces being captured on CCTV or fingerprints saved on a database? when they gratuitously share personal information through social media? It does sound a little bit like a, um, a kind of dissonance between the two, but really it's about control because mm. I, I can choose to upload a photo to Facebook or, or whatever other social media, but I can't choose if I'm captured on CCTV. But we, we have to say, well, do we... Do we allow the CCTV because it gives us a perception of safety and security, even though it doesn't necessarily prevent any criminal activity? It means it's easier to prosecute. But really what I say is that people should have a, a reasonable expectation of when they're surveilled and when they're not, um, and it should be proportionate. I don't think it's a good idea for people to have be fingerprinted when they're going to nightclubs, for example, because I don't trust nightclub owners to manage bi biometric data. Mm -hmm. But I guess when when I talk to people at, in my work environment about these two things, 
um, I, I explained to them that just because um, young people are sharing a lot on Facebook doesn't mean that we have carte blanche to use the same personal information in our organisation. We have to uh, comply with the, the laws okay. that are um, involved in Victoria, but we also have to think about what our customers, what our students would expect us to um, be doing with their data. And so that gives them the idea of, of control in either situation. Okay. So then how valuable is our data to malicious third parties? Well, it depends because, I mean, we, we think about all these uh, hackers that are getting huge amounts of data and, uh, I mean, there have been um, huge breaches and organisations like Target have lost millions of customers' names, home addresses and credit card details. Mm. And uh, in the UK a few years ago, someone lost a, a CD with something like 12 million um, taxpayers' personal information, including bank accounts. But so huge amounts of data is, is floating around and it's, we're almost protected by the fact that there is so much out there. Are they really going to be interested in little old you and me? I don't think so. But there's two things that can happen. There can either be that your credit card is picked up by someone who can, or your bank account by someone who can get into it. And, that, and we do see that happening a lot where people take a scan of a credit card, they make a few little test payments or, or, or um, invoices to try and get a little bit of money. And if that works, then they clear the whole card out. So that's a common thing that can happen. It's just about cash money. But the, more, the other more common type of ID theft actually in Australia is that someone would steal your mail. Really? And wow. that, yeah, and that can be somebody that is your neighbour or it can even be relatives of yours that impersonate you to get a large amount of loan, credit um, money from a bank like a mortgage or, or car financing. Okay. And that is more likely in Australia to happen to you than the hack, the unknown hacker from Czech Republic or wherever. So, wow, okay. <laughs> and the the only way to protect from those those um, kind of mail theft, which leads to identity fraud, the only way really to protect yourself is to get a lockable mailbox, and wherever possible, not have sensitive um, documents or credit cards and that sort of thing sent to your home address. You send it to a PO box and also to get regular credit checks. Okay. Wow. wow. <laughs> Guess that puts it into perspective. perspective. It does, but the reason why that's a growing crime is because it's relatively lucrative compared to, say, burglary, um, but it has very low jail time attached to it currently. Okay. Okay. Internet of Things entails previously simple devices such as home-like goods, appliances, security systems, locks and other devices with processes inbuilt and access to the internet. Combined with an array of sensors, these devices can be controlled and monitored from a remote location via the internet. As this technology sees mass adoption, it will create a network of smart things, which has the potential to open up all kinds of information about our usage of these devices. 
It is important that when this technology reaches mainstream adoption, that technology companies build and adapt their security protocols and privacy policies to reflect the needs and desires of the average user. Manufacturers do all processing and analysis of Internet of Things data, which entails privacy concerns for the average user, meaning that your data is out of your control and at the mercy of manufacturers' policies, be they great or malicious. So moving on to Internet of Things, what information would you be comfortable or uncomfortable sharing that these devices may collect? Well, I guess the Internet of Things is mainly based around your home environment. I mean, my mother can turn on her air conditioning from work so that it's warm when she gets home. So there's no way of keeping your home address out of the picture because it's usually your fridge or your aircon or something like that. So for me personally, I don't have any anything really smart around me except my phone. I prefer that those those objects aren't broadcasting their location. The, the GPS or the home address I prefer to keep private. So I don't mind if people have my email account. I don't really mind if they have my mobile, my personal mobile phone number. But I would prefer not to have widely broadcast my um, home address. The other thing that I'm not comfortable having online is health information because you're not sure really how that's going to be used I was talking about insurers before. There are other, perhaps, government departments, ways of predicting um, future costs to government agencies by what you're eating now, for example. I would prefer that government didn't get involved with cataloguing what my fridge has got in it and therefore what my health information might might um, infer from that from that mm. food. So, I mean, there's lots of things that we just don't know how these how this information is going to be used. But, again, we're using it because it's nifty and also it's convenient. Um, and so I think that as, as t the next five to ten years develops, we'll, we'll really see how these um, technologies affect us long, more longer term. And that's if the machines don't actually kind of get sentience and take over. Maybe we won't have to worry about it because <laughs> all the fridges and TVs and phones will rise up um, against us and be our over machine overlords. So how might the information or data generated by these devices about the user be able to be used for malicious intent? There could be, I mean, anything it, but it would play out the same patterns as it is now I mean it's a sad sad case that most violence happens for someone you know or someone you're related to so let's think about violent ex-partners they if they can tap into some of these devices um, they can court allow people to be surveilled without knowing or uh, affect the environment or their health and um we just don't know how they might be used. It, 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 there still has to be the same old motivations and intentions okay. by humans to hurt other humans. So I, I don't see it as the technology allowing a whole lot more crime that didn't exist before. But, I mean, one thing to, that there's a bit of an urban legend about baby monitors. Now, baby monitors have been around a long time. but And they didn't used to be Wi-Fi enabled, but you could still use different kind of 
walkie-talkie technology to walk around the neighbourhood and tap into the baby monitors and you could hear people talking and that there was an urban legend that someone used it to um, abduct a child. And I think that that was a kind of apocryphal tale to warn people to say, be careful of your technology, be aware that you're broadcasting outside your home. Mm. And, of course, Wi-Fi is even more than just a baby monitor. It is broadcasting all sorts of things outside your home. So it's really important to use a, a very strong password, not just um, password one, two, three, um, <laughs> on your Wi-Fi. And um, to try and find the, 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 the most secure password you can remember and use it for that and not share it with too many people because that's, that's where the likelihood is that, um, that people might use it, your technology against you from your, your home technology. Should a universal standard be put in place to not only ensure the interoperability of these devices but also the security of the system? I don't know whether any government-imposed standards would, well, they definitely wouldn't keep up with the technology, that's for sure, but any prescriptive standards um, would be difficult to enforce mm. because it's very hard to test it. You really have to have black hat, black hat, white hats to kind of test it. So you need to, people who have the skills and interest to do the nefarious um, kind of, testing of things to work out how, if they can break it. So I don't see government paying loads of hackers to wander about the streets trying to hack into fridges. So I just don't see practically how it could be enforced. But, of course, it does need some kind of regulation. So we need to have something like a set of standards like the Victorian um, Data Security Framework and have that apply to uh, items that you could consider to be in the Internet of Things that are going to be in home use. I mean, another one of the issues that happened was um, the doll. Did you hear about the doll? There was a no, doll that was... No, I didn't. There's, I can't remember the exact details, but there was a doll that was kind of uh, Internet-enabled, and it could... You could um, program in certain information, and then it would... You would listen to your voice, and it would feed back different statements to you but that was actually via the cloud and so that got hacked into i think it was in south korea and right. so lots and lots of ch child biodata um, was was collected by um, hackers and and sold on dark net don't know what for mm. it's got really creepy implications <laughs> yeah that, um, that with people with the strong motivation to get access to children would be able to hack into a doll and listen to the, the conversation of a child talking to a doll. And that, that sort of thing really scares me because I see play as something that should be unmonitored. And um, so when, when toys start to be used to monitor children, to, to be with the idea of being a fun game, but it's not so fun when you think about who might be listening and and that's quite scary mm. so are manufacturers providing enough information to customers when it relates to their privacy well when they provide the information uh, particularly in america it's very very ob obfuscated by dense privacy statements really really yeah. 
legalese as they call it it's very very dense and and incomprehensible and i think that's why in australia and other jurisdictions uh, the emphasis for privacy policies and privacy statements is on plain english and to keep them as short as possible but to be really comprehensive in your privacy statement it does get longer and longer and people are quite blasé they just say okay i love this doll i'm going to click yes and and parents are making that choice for their children but it really comes down to that idea that brands need to keep up standards. Now, whether that's a safety standard or a information security standard to protect their brand. I mean, if you look at what happened with Sony and the um, the hacking into their gaming devices, yes. The, yes. The, the brand is basically almost defunct now. And when you say Sony, that's what people think about, is that they were a technology company that couldn't even keep their data safe so i think that if the the companies are not going to think about what standards they're subject to what laws they're subject to they've got to think about it in terms of reputation clients customers aren't going to trust you if you they can't trust you with their data because data's um you know the currency these days Mm. that will conclude exposed for this episode on social media thank you very much for listening And until next time.